Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's spring, and what better way to put a spring in your step than by buying some comfy knickers or pants? That is how it works, right? I mean, when I was a kid, if you bought new trainers, then everyone said you'd be able to run faster. So I guess if you buy new pants, then you might be able to put a spring in your... Oh, no, bum. Wait, that's... Wait, okay, that's wrong. Yes, anyway, uh, while we all know the wonderful British boxers do an incredible range of things to sleep in, it's now nearly sunny outside again, you know, in that way where it's also a bit cold, but you're still going to need a new T-shirt, hoodie, or new pants to go and try it in before you then have to go back inside and get your jacket. And British boxers have a brilliant range of all of those things, as well as pyjamas that you're probably still going to need for work until at least 2023. British boxers are an independent, ethically excellent lot who make actually nice lounge and casual wear that you can wear inside or outside, but, you know, with shoes on as well because you're sensible. Head to british-boxers.com and use the code PARPOLBRO10 and you'll get 10% off whatever you order. You might accuse me of being in the pockets of Big Pyjama and I'd say, no, actually, I'll take a medium and my pockets have an old tissue in because that's tradition. It's just always there. I don't even know where it's come from. It's really strange. It's every... Pajama pocket, it's always an old tissue. How does it get there? Who's put it? Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy and politics podcast that is never afraid to joke about flags or any other fabric decorative adornments, including bunting, banners, and tapestries, because to me, it's just all good comedy material. I'm Tina Dewey-Ebb and this week as the scientific pandemic influenza group on modelling advises that the UK faces a real risk if people travel abroad this summer, I assume that's because they get a glimpse of how much better everywhere else is right now and absolutely refuse to come back. It's lucky that the Olympics are going ahead this year, isn't it? As currently the UK government and many of its supporters are prime contenders for winning the gold medal in mental gymnastics, despite all the twists and giant leaps required to truly excel. I'm really envious right now of people's ability to scream they've cancelled free speech at someone like a distressed banshee, while at the same time wanting the death penalty to be brought back for anyone who insults a piece of material that they feel precious about. Or anyone who wishes the army could be sent in to fire at protesters who are just protesting for the right to protest, while at the same time they complain that we live in a nanny state because you can't go on holiday abroad. Whilst also overlooking that the government have reduced the army by 10,000 troops, so if they were sent in to shoot protesters, they'd also not be able to guard the borders from all the children they think are actually terrorists whose evil plan to destroy Britain involves having no access to benefits and being stuck in a former army barracks with no running water. 
or being able to think that billions of pounds should be spent on new nuclear weapons in order to defend against the increasing threat of cyber warfare, as though you can just explode the cloud rather than kill everyone creating your own mushroom ones. Or that Scotland's first minister and what if Playmobil made a figure of your aunt, Nicola Sturgeon, would have had to resign if it was found she'd misled Parliament by supporting women who'd said they'd been harassed, whereas the Prime Minister and man-thing in a chicken suit, Boris Johnson, failing to report a donation of £60,000 just to make his flat all nice, and let's face it, that probably only just covers the stains he makes sitting on things, that's fine, and the fact you've even brought it up is just pathetic political bias and absolutely typical of you lot. Or that the Conservatives should definitely take over local government in Liverpool because there have been terrible allegations of corruption and actually the allegations of corruption against the government just means that they might be able to spot it more quickly. Or thinking that because half the population, including you, have had the vaccine, we should all be allowed to do absolutely everything again. And what do you mean, what about the other half? Who? What are you talking about? Hey, now, you only needed 52% of the population last time to go ahead with a lack of planning. And the fact that the majority of those who've been jabbed are the same age ranges that voted leave surely means that we can just give it a go. And anyone that complains that their future has been destroyed is obviously just an incompetent young person who should work harder and stop buying avocados so that they can afford their houses that don't exist and aren't affordable. Of course, nuance is often lost in today's political age, and maybe being able to hold two completely and utterly contradictory opinions at once, based entirely on what works for you, isn't illogical, but perhaps some sort of higher state of consciousness that allows you to be happy in this world, while the rest of us just feel perpetually defeated. But, as ignorance is bliss, I choose never to find out, and just assume that a large amount of British people are fucking idiots and will never ever change. On the plus side, at least it's possible to say that our politicians are representative of the public. As, if they too couldn't conduct such incredible feats of logic shitting, then how would the Home Secretary and someone who's never had to revise to pass a means test, Pretty Patel, remark on protests against the policing bill in Bristol by saying, thuggery and disorder by a minority will never be tolerated, just one week after she ordered police to beat up a lot of women. Hey, maybe I'm reading that sentence wrong, and as is expected from Patel, emphasis is actually on the by a minority bit, as that's a category of people she never tolerates. The protest started as a peaceful affair against the Policing, Crime, Sentencing and Courts Bill that was voted through its second reading last week by lots of Conservative politicians like MP for Shipley and exactly who you'd cast if you needed someone to portray a denizen of hell disguised as a person in order to cause chaos on earth, Philip Davis, who had spent most of his time until last week protesting for free speech at universities where they already have it, free speech for people to make videos promoting Nazis or just how Covid regulations restrict people's freedom by not letting them die where they like. Of course, when it comes to actually restricting freedoms, Davis is totes voting for that, as in reality he only likes free speech when it comes from his mouth and is heavily paid for by gambling companies. Former Work and Pensions Secretary and constant proof that if you pick at a spot it gets angry, Ian Duncan-Smith, said that he understood that there were issues around freedom of speech and the right to assemble, but overall it's a good bill. Which is a bit like saying that he can see thousands of whirling blades three feet off the ground might decapitate kids, but he finds the whirring sound soothing, so hey, it's worth a punt. This is, of course, the same man who wanted the UK to crack down on trade with China due to their breaches of human rights. But it turns out that with his history of letting people with disabilities die, Duncan Smith potentially thinks the actual problem is that China don't go far enough. Ashfield's MP and what you might draw if I said make a brick racist, Lee Anderson, was only the other week insisting in Parliament that phone-hacking flaccid wattle Piers Morgan should be allowed to stay in the job he willingly quit from because of free speech. He also voted for the policing bill and described the Home Office deporting people to Jamaica as an early Christmas present. Saying that Anderson probably has to say people going away is what he wants from Santa to cover up how he has to spend every December the 25th alone because all of his family think he's an obnoxious prick. 
It says a lot about the policing bill that one of the only Conservatives who seemed concerned by it was former Prime Minister and proof you can fossilise people, Theresa May, who said she was worried about the unintended consequences of the bill and the power that it gives the Home Office. Exactly, trees. What if it lets them drive around vans with racist slogans on or decide a whole tonne of British people aren't? It was the political version of when a major comic book villain reaches out to the superheroes to say that something worse is coming. She still did vote for it though, because ultimately, what's most important is all the intended consequences of it, which May probably wishes that she'd come up with. Yes, the bill does include lots of ways that they say will protect people from crime, but some of those ways now include the government's proposal that to make women feel safer, they'll put plainclothes officers in bars and clubs. Brilliant, because after a policeman was accused of a murder of a young woman, making all the other police officers dress up like their parents get them ready for the club will make all the women in that building feel really safe that if those cops want to harass or abuse them, they'll be at least protected by the spy cops bill and not clog up the court system. See, everyone's a winner. So look, it makes sense that people would want to protest against this bill in order to be able to protest about anything else ever again. And so Kill the Bill March in Bristol on Sunday seemed like a very reasonable response. Well, unless your name is Bill and you hadn't read the news and you were very worried about what you'd done to cause this. But while it started peacefully, it got pretty violent after riot police turned up with batons, which, as we all know, usually diffuses the situation and makes everyone super zen. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I'm stressed and angry, nothing would soothe my mind like a man in a big helmet running at me with a stick. Especially when the week before a lot of officers with sticks attacked unarmed women just for feeling unsafe. So a small number of protesters caused trouble by rather violently blocking baton strikes with their faces. Others stupidly fired fireworks into the crowd, which is silly as by firing them into the sky everyone would have been distracted and had a nice time instead. And a police van was set fire to, which isn't clever, as with all the cuts to the police force, that's not a renewable energy source. Some police were injured, which isn't good at all, and nor is any injury to anyone or violence full stop. I don't need to say that out loud, you're not stupid. No, those people are too busy on social media to listen to this. But what shouldn't happen, and absolutely will happen, is that the violent bit from Sunday's protest will be used to prove that the policing bill is necessary, like the same way that one kid in your class might have acted up because they'd been largely neglected by the teacher and their valid opinions oppressed, and then the whole class would get detention as a result and you'd all feel angry and work as a unit next time to take down the teacher using grassroots organisations. Sorry, I've got confused. Obviously, people want the streets to be safer, which is why the police only arrested a few people at the anti-lockdown protests marching through London on Saturday, knowing full well that as they didn't wear masks, most of the others should take each other out within weeks, which will save a lot of time and effort. Lockdown is lifting a bit more next week and then a bit more a few weeks after, so protesting about it now just feels like wanting to open up your birthday presents before the day. It's easy to see why people are fed up. I mean, for a start, leading epidemiologists have said that masks and social distancing are likely to be needed for years, which I think is great news for my plans to become a solitary vigilante. And then a government advisory body said summer holidays abroad are unlikely, something that me and my bank balance have known for many years now and really don't need it re-emphasised. Defence Secretary and big eyebrows drawn on a baby, Ben Wallace, has said that there may be an extension to the ban on foreign holidays, which has upset many who are keen to use all the money they've got from exploiting renters to abuse regulations in other countries where the death toll will matter to them less. Europe appears to be having its third Covid wave, with infection numbers rising so rapidly in Germany, Italy, France, Hungary and Poland, among others, that the UK may end up not even having the worst death rate in the continent. Hooray! Though I'm sure Johnson will see it as the EU being competitive and try his very best to come out on top again. The EU have now decided that the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine is safe to use, and Boris Johnson called leaders to reassure them, which will probably mean that they'll ban it again any minute now. Johnson condemned vaccine nationalism as it's only all the other types that he approved of, and he got his first jab himself last week and says that he didn't feel a thing, but that may be because, as we all know, he's severely emotionally stunted. 
Johnson turned up to his jab in a full shirt to be as much of a burden as possible to the nurse as if he hadn't spent his entire time in number 10 hammering that home already. In contrast, Lord Bethel, who lives entirely on hate, took his whole shirt off for his jab like a toddler in a restaurant. Loads of people joked, but it does explain why Bethel thinks nurses pay as enough for the job they do if the people he usually sees in nurses' costumes require him to get naked and pay afterwards. The NHS have warned that there'll be a significant reduction of vaccine supplies from the end of March, which the Health Secretary and Mr Poopy Butthole from Rick and Morty, Matt Hancock, responded to during a press briefing where he clearly only found out about it on camera and panicked by saying that vaccine supplies were always going to be lumpy. The sort of comment that really won't reassure any Europeans concerned about getting blood clots from it. The supply issues are apparently India's fault, as the British government seem to be working their way round all the big countries till all they have left to blame is the boogie. I mean, hey, our Prime Minister does idolise Churchill, so I suppose we should have known at some point this would happen. India's stockpile is meant to be for lower-income countries, so either the British government is employing the sort of vaccine nationalism I thought it didn't like, or maybe they've had a serious look at our economic future and are actually preparing something in advance for once. The UK is still on course to vaccinate everyone over 50 by April the 15th, reaching a third consecutive record day of vaccinations on Monday by doing 27 jabs a second like eHonda's special move. Nearly 28 million people in the UK have now had their first vaccinations, which is remarkable, but it still means that more than half haven't. Though, as is true form for Steve Baker, the MP who looks like Beaker's humorless brother, much as he did with Brexit, he's not remotely concerned about the welfare of the other half of the country and just wants everything to open up right now. Baker is the head of the Covid Recovery Group, who keep insisting on making the country recover by doing things that will make everyone get Covid even more, as though a hair of the dog strategy might work on viruses and you'll never feel its effects if you just have a shot for breakfast. Baker says he'll be voting against the government extending the Coronavirus Act renewal this week, which gives the government emergency powers to enforce lockdowns and give all their friends money to provide glorified bin bags to nurses. It's tricky because really Baker is in some ways right to oppose a bill that allows Boris Johnson to potentially continue to fuck things up, like when the virus first emerged and he said an overreaction to it would do more harm than good, so the UK should just ignore it. I suppose it makes sense for the Prime Minister to assume the virus had the same weaknesses that he did. The PM's former advisor and rejected Funko Pop, Dominic Cummings, appeared in front of the Commons Science and Technology Committee last week and called for an investigation into the government's handling of the coronavirus, as though by pointing and shouting, look over there, they might not notice him sneaking away. Cummings, who single-handedly took Covid to Barnard Castle, said that actually the Department of Health were a smoking ruin when the crisis stuck and that they should have had a separate task force just for the vaccine. I presume Dom had pals that had never been in a task force or knew what the vaccine was that would have absolutely been up for doing it. Labour say they won't oppose extending the Coronavirus Act as that would mean they'd be doing their job and it'd just confuse everyone. So even if Steve Baker and his treehouse of friends don't vote for it, it'll probably still pass. But could it also be that maybe the Prime Minister has finally learned his lesson? I mean, he's chosen very careful language to say that without precaution, the third wave will wash up on our shores from Europe. And that's smart, right, as it should definitely get all those on board who believe Covid is a hoax, but are also terrified by immigration. The Foreign Secretary and eyes like stab wounds in a week old pie, Dominic Raab, has confirmed that the UK will lift the cap on the number of nuclear warheads in our stockpile, as what he called the ultimate insurance policy against hostile states, presumably because it would mean we could take ourselves out before they do, and that would count as a win in his book, and he'd probably be shouting world-beating as Raab's glistening ham face turned to ash. Considering that the main threat that currently exists in the world is cyber warfare, I do wonder if Rob thinks it's just possible to bomb the internet and that we're mere months away from the government ordering a warhead strike on the wires at the back of the Foreign Secretary's desktop. 
Only a few months back, Raab said he was committed to stopping Iran from getting more nukes. So maybe his thinking is that by buying them all up first, Iran won't get a chance, as they're not going to bother staying up all night refreshing the Argos page, are they? Oh wait, sorry, that's PlayStation 5s, but it's basically the same. Some people have said it's ridiculous there's no money to give nurses a pay rise, but there's money to pointlessly increase the nukes. But if you think about it, if we launched a nuclear warhead and a nuclear war happened, there'd be no one left for nurses to fix up anymore, or any nurses anymore, or anyone anymore. So really, it's far more cost effective. Meanwhile, the army have been reduced to their smallest size in 200 years, which now I think means they'll be able to effectively fight mice, wasps, and the MOD can save money by transporting them in your pocket rather than big ships or planes. It's rumoured that the government are going to take over Liverpool Council with Housing Minister and Loaf of Bread for a face, Robert Jenrick, potentially planning to install commissioners to run the historically Labour city. This is due to allegations of corruption, much like the ones against Robert Jenrick for handing his pal Richard Desmond massive tax breaks. Or like how Boris Johnson's failed to declare £60,000 that was donated to him to do up his Downing Street flat. Or like how it was found out this week that former Prime Minister and deflated balloon David Cameron lobbied the Chancellor and Spring Onion, Rishi Sunak, for £400 million of government help to a company that then went bust. But hey, how else to prove that his years of massive, massive cuts to public funding was necessary than by proving that so much of it is just wasted on completely useless projects? Number 10's new £2.6 million media room was installed by a Russian company who also do work for state-owned Russia today, and they put in all the cameras, microphones and computers in the facility, just leaving out a picture with moving eyes and a secret room for a man in a Cossack hat to listen in. Downing Street say they have absolutely no security concerns about this being the case, but I suppose why would they, as if anyone got angry about it, they'd find polonium in their tea. So you can see why Liverpoolians might be concerned about the potential government takeover, but I think actually they shouldn't be so hasty, as it could mean an awful lot of money is brought into the city. Well, for at least a few minutes anyway, until it's funneled back out in failed projects and oligarchs' pockets, but hey, at least it visited. A majority of ministers on the Alex Salmond committee concluded that Nicola Sturgeon misled their inquiry as to whether she intervened in the government's harassment allegation against the former First Minister and flesh conquer. But an independent inquiry by Ireland's former Chief Prosecutor James Hamilton decided that actually Sturgeon didn't breach the ministerial code, meaning that she now won't be under pressure to resign as First Minister, but at the same time has lost the relevant experience to potentially become Education Secretary, Home Secretary or even Prime Minister. Labour have selected their candidate for the Hartlepool by-election from their very long list of one, and amazingly, against all the odds, that candidate, Paul Williams, won. Labour leader and Dell Optiplex 990p Centel Corps Keir Starmer said just last month that the selection for Labour election candidates needs to be more democratic, and local party members should be able to select their own candidates. So it's lovely that Labour have adhered to that here by parachuting in an ardent Remainer into a largely Brexit area that had a very narrow Labour win last time, while Paul Williams lost down the road in Stockton. As though everyone that voted for the Brexit party in Hartlepool in 2019 will now think, oh, actually no, what I really wanted was someone who didn't represent me in the slightest and has already been rejected by our neighbours. Paul Williams has already got in trouble after a tweet of his from 2011 emerged where he said, do you have a preferred Tory MILF? Mind-blowing dinner conversation. Which puts to rest any concerns by critics that Labour are in bed with the Conservatives when in reality they just wish they were. Williamson also took a state-arranged expenses paid trip to Saudi Arabia where he insists he met modern and progressive people, so good luck to any journalist trying to dig up dirt on him. Labour concern about the very progressive and pretty exciting Northern Independence Party taking many of their youth votes in the area. Weird, huh? I mean, you'd think the kids would be flocking to a party that's shown them how democratic they are by sending in a man who looks like one minute he might be making fresh pasta on this morning and the next selling your nan for oil while trying to flirt with the Home Secretary. And lastly, BBC Breakfast presenter Naga Manchetti was forced to apologise after laughing at a joke her white male colleague Charlie Stade had made, asking Robert Jenrick if the union flag in his office was a little small compared to his colleagues. 
It was a fair question, though, as if government ministers really want to represent the country in 2021, they should be massively flagging too. Also, it says a lot that the housing ministry is unable to erect a small pole to even half-mast. Boris Johnson is spending nearly £1 million repainting a new Brexit jet in red, white and blue. On one hand, it's a total waste of cash for pointless tokenistic showcasing. But on the other hand, it's nice that finally one of the projects he's spent absolutely millions on will actually take off. And far-right uncooked calzone Tommy Robinson has been found to have spent all of his supporters' donations on cocaine parties and prostitutes. That explains why he was so upset a few years ago having milkshakes thrown at him, because he's far more of a fully skimming guy. Hey, hey, Parpol Broads, how goes you? I am recording this on my agent's third birthday and second lockdown birthday, which you might think is sad, but actually I'm pretty pleased that our flat isn't overrun with sugar-fueled mad toddlers smashing cake into the furniture, and there is part of me wondering if I should just tell her there's a lockdown next year too. I am, of course, joking. Of course there'll be a lockdown next year too. No, I'm joking. I mean, we had a nice day yesterday, and she's been at nursery today, meaning that me and my wife have celebrated three years of parenting by sitting in the complete quiet and just not moving very much. I've written today's show while being so very very still it's been really quite something uh this is the last podcast for a couple of weeks because i can feel my brain getting to the point where writing jokes is hard because all i want to do is say oh what the fuck a lot and call people assholes instead of writing something clever as you may have noticed in the intro today i've read a piece yesterday right um about i don't know why i read these pieces i don't know why i do this to myself but there was a piece yesterday that popped up in my feed about a woman who's an asylum seeker from north korea um and is now running to be a conservative councillor in berry because she's quoted as saying after living in a socialist regime she couldn't vote for socialists like labor And look, hey, I can't imagine what it's like to escape uh, North Korea. She's had a really horrific, horrific and depressing life. But I mean, Jesus, reading that gave me a weird mix of wanting to scream, wanting to drive to Berry and shout political definitions into her home through the letterbox and just sort of sighing a lot, curling into a ball and giving up on humanity. I mean, look, not that you need me to go through this, but North Korea isn't socialist. It's a monarchy-led authoritarian state filled with corruption and many elements of fascism, but it pretends to have the premise of communism by sticking a hammer and sickle up all over the place. Secondly, Labour isn't socialist. They're currently social democrats, if that at all. And then the idea that you might be an asylum seeker in the UK and think the best people to represent you are the Conservatives is akin to being a fox and thinking the best people to represent you in the country are Conservatives. I mean, look, is it a lack of awareness of political ideals? Is it just that no one fucking cares anymore and can't even be bothered to try? Is it that all of this is sewn up and we should just go and live on Sealand as a entirely independent island? I don't know. Uh, the fact is, I should probably just spend two weeks not thinking about it uh, for a while in order to stop asking my wife all these questions while she tries to watch and enjoy Drag Race. So, uh, this week, um, big thank you tons to Taz and Connell who donated to the Kofi, which, oh my God, it's appreciated this week as it appears the self-employed support that I thought we were getting this month because it's from Feb to April is now not arriving till May. Um, so thanks for that, Rishi Sunak. I do hope that it comes with a time machine so I can actually pay my rent for the months that it's meant to be supporting me in. Jesus Christ, either that or I'm going to have to send him an invoice with added interest um just jesus so that's why i'm not even going to enter this podcast for the british podcast awards this year so um because i can't afford it it's like 30 quid plus vat per entry per category which is just a bit too much but on the plus side it does mean that when this podcast doesn't get nominated for anything um it's just because i don't have the funds rather than because um the judges think it's shit like most years so it'd be a nice change anyway so if you fancy supplementing me where the government aren't i mean isn't that the future of all our lives then please do throw a pound or two at the ko-fi.com forward slash parpol bro uh, joining the patreon.com forward slash parpol bro or via the ACAST supporter button or you know failing that buy something at British Boxers using the discount code or just tell everyone you know to listen in and give the show a nice shiny review so other people might give it a try and sort of mix laughing with shouting fuck's sake uh, even more into their day I mean that's that's basically what this is 
So, uh, some quick admins for you this week. Um, firstly, this Friday, March the 26th, I'm part of a lovely bill on an online Quantum Leopard gig raising money for Sisters Uncut. Um, I should say it's not endorsed by Sisters Uncut, but it is for them, uh, if it makes sense. Um, anyway, I'm on with uh, Sikissa, um, Chloe Petz, Sarah Keyworth, Sarah Barron, and James Ross, who are all very, very funny people indeed. Um, and it's going to be really good fun. Uh, tickets, I'll pay what you want, and I'll pop a link into the podcast for them too. Also, a regular pod helper, Cat Day, has narrated this week's uh, Pseudopod, which that's how she says it's pronounced. I'm still not sure. Suedopod? Sodopod? Swadarpod? One of those. Anyway, it's Swadarpod episode 747 entitled Keeping House, and it is a spooky old tale and very much fun, um, and she's done a great job in narrating it too, so please do give that a listen. And links, of course, be in the wordy bit. And last thing is that um, on today's show, it's another chat about the media and politics, which I know I've done a few of lately, um, but it's because there's loads to talk about it, really. I'm very interested in it, and I hope you are too. But when the podcast returns, um, I'm hoping to do a catch-up on Scottish, Welsh and Northern Irish politics, local elections, mayoral elections, and just more grassroots shiz and other political areas um, that's grassroots as in politics not stuff to do with gardening I don't want to do an episode on that unless you can think of political gardening stuff I haven't got there yet anyway any suggestions you have for any of those things send them my way at all the places I'll list later in the show in their usual audio home and on this week's show, the excellent Dr. Bethany Usher is back to chat to me about the intertwining of celebrity journalism and politics. And plus, in the middle, a teeny mo about vaccine nationalism. Or as I like to call it, vaccinalism. No, wait, that's a bit tricky to say, isn't it? Vaccinash. Vaccinalism. Nationalism. Oh, God, I need a break. <laughs> If I was to say to you, what is the relationship between celebrity and politics, you'd probably immediately think of how every time there's political fundraisers for good causes, loads of really cool artists and musicians turn up, but every time the Conservatives do one, it's just Gary Barlow, and then he sings a song that sounds like a small rodent is being washed down a very large drain, and he pretends he pays taxes. But actually, the notion of celebrity, as in someone who gets public attention, appeals to many politicians. Not just in the way that many of us know who they are enough to swear at the TV when they're on, but also in the way in which the press feels it's important for us to know details about their personal lives, such as how many kitchens they have, or if their relatives they have no connection with anymore once thought about skipping a bus fare, or when it comes to Conservatives, how it's none of your business how many kids they have, but don't they rugby tackle children well. If journalism created and is driven by celebrity culture, has celebrity culture and journalism in turn driven our politics into a wall while on a cocktail of drugs? I probably don't really need to ask this as we all wonder why so many vote so selfishly and then you turn on the TV to see normal people aren't even allowed to win a washing machine on a game show anymore as a celebrity has to have a go to win money for a charity that they otherwise wouldn't bother helping. We are unfortunately invested in stories and narratives as human beings and by giving political stories a human side that makes readers become more invested and of course distracted from how many of the subjects aren't actually people at all but are giant lizards. Huh. Politics, celebrity and journalism are three sides of a weird coin that only rich people have but will it ever change? And more importantly are there ways to adapt to it or work with it to mean that we're not forever stuck with a Prime Minister who is a former journalist and therefore knows just how to persuade people he has a personality rather than the reality of his entire being is just three repeated stories bellowed into a bin followed by whatever the last person in the room told him to say. Recently on this podcast I've had quite a few pod chats about the media side of politics as I think it's such a major force in all of it whether we like it or mostly not. Three episodes ago it was Dr Chris Roberts on the state of British political media and last episode was Helen O'Hara on the sexism within the film industry. This week to wrap it all up I spoke to the brilliant journalist, writer and academic Dr Bethany Usher. Last time Bethany was on this show many moons ago, she superbly explained attack journalism and its history. 
Recently, she's released a new book, Journalism and Celebrity, that looks at how celebrity journalism came to be and the effect that it's had on both society and politics from the 1800s to today. I asked her all about how our obsession with celebs affects the way we vote and the way we digest news and also why it's always Gary Bloody Barlow for the Tories. OK, I didn't actually ask the last one. Actually, to be perfectly honest, the first half of the interview is very much about Bethany's recent research area, and then due to my tangential question asking, the second half is a chat that's more focused on the political lot we're stuck with, and just why on earth people fall for their stick. It was great to get Bethany back on the show and talk to her again, so I do hope you enjoy. Here is Bethany. Hi Bethany, it's really nice to have you on the podcast again. Um, and this time asking you about something that I, I mean, it feels incredibly relevant over the past few weeks, um, n- not just in the way that politicians have been kind of heralded by certain uh, newspapers, despite their foibles, many, many awful foibles, but also with things like the Royals and and that scenario. Um, and, and I wanted to ask you, you know, how is the notion of celebrity intertwined with journalism? And I suppose more personally to this podcast, why and how does that involve politics and politicians? Um, well, so the origins of democracy and capitalism in the UK find their roots in the 18th century and in relationship to the 18th century, London-based and then eventually more regional-based press as well over the course of the century and into the into the next century. So right from the origins, when you have the revolutionary debate of the 18th century, the arguments for greater democracy, the inclusion discussions, the first inclusions of ordinary people within political and public spheres, you also have um, the consumer revolution where people for the first time have disposable incomes and are buying more goods and the boom of literacy. So by the end of the century, about 50% of the British population are literate. And those things uniquely combined in the British press to create both the idea of political journalism and the idea of celebrity journalism. Right from their origins, they are together, they are both evident in the newspapers of those periods but also really intertwined. So you have, um, for example, very big celebrities, huge celebrities of their day, such as Georgiana Duchess of Devonshire, who's kind of the first multimedia celebrity that we have. She's got consumer goods that she sells. She is an author. author. She um, is a darling, she's a fashionista, the darling of the press, um, or, or of the li- liberal, the Whig press. Um, and she's also political. Um, and that takes swings. It takes place eventually. What she does is actually start com- campaigning for the Whig Party uh, on the streets of London. And there's all these accounts of her kissing babies and, and drinking ale in, in um, houses. And she, she designs a set of Whig coloured fans to be sold at the Huskings. And um, so you've got this idea of the celebrity campaigner really emerging very, very early on in the kind of end of the 18th century. Earlier than that, you have, um, for example, the revolutionary debaters. And I think last time on the podcast, we talked about Thomas Paine, but he is also trapped very much as a celebrity. And by surviving newspaper records, there is more content that discusses him in a personal term than there is actually writings about um, his political pamphlets and what we have that's surviving from this time. And that includes kind of accounts of his personal life, suggestions around his sexuality um, and his friendships with other men, um, references to his trousers being found in water closets, uh, <laughs> um, accusations he's a thief, um, all of these kinds of 
sort of personalised and scurrilous attacks which are linked to undermining his political work. Um, and also um, accounts that celebrate him, you know, that talk about his relationships with friends in positive terms, How's that? how that's impacted political change too. So they've never been separate. The worlds of journalism, celebrity and politics are just intertwined from their origins. And they are the ways in which the press, the creation of celebrity was one of the ways by which the press tried to circulate new ideas about what it meant to be a human, sell goods in relation to the consumer revolution, and also as a way to negotiate and to communicate to audiences, to readers, what um, was happening in the realm of politics too. Well, I was going to ask you, is, is, you know, is it necessary to kind of grab people and get them interested into politics to, to kind of put that human element into it? Do they do the newspapers need to say this person's like this because that's the only way that we'll be interested in the story as other human beings? It, you know, does it, does it have less grab than just putting the politics as they are or putting the facts as they are? Well, history would tell us that, yes, it does have greater impact. And that's why politicians do it. That's why they employ PR agents. That's why they perform in certain ways. And that if they do so, newspapers will sell more copies. There will be more clicks, likes and shares. If you look at um, content uh, now in the digital age, then that kind of hook in becomes more important than ever. And we see when you, for example, if you were to look at content relation to the obvious um, celebrity politician of our age, um, Donald Trump. And if you look at the kind of male online content about him, it is not just about a political leader. It's not just a president. It is also about his family life, his children, what they're wearing. It's this whole negotiated and um, constructed sense of who he is. So there's a reason why that is useful to Donald Trump. It gives a it gives him greater publicity in a in an age where heightened visibility is seems to be the number one way by which you gain um, some form of political or social power. Um, and it's also useful for the male online. They wouldn't keep doing it if, if it didn't keep getting clicked on. Because their algorithms and their kind of response rates from audiences have direct influence on the content of um, they're journalists that they produce more of what is popular. Um, so the answer to your question is that we've never had a period before where we haven't had this kind of relationship to different levels and with different moments of heightened activity across the course of the last 320 years. We've never had a period since the origins of the mass media, I should say, which, which is the 18th century press. Um, would it? is the question, isn't it? Is that, that's a question for us all, wouldn't it? If we if we removed this fundamental facet of political reporting, which is the relationship with celebrity culture and the personalization of, of political figures, would it still communicate to audiences in the same way? It's a very tricky question, is it? Because I, I you know, I know, I mean, even on, on my podcast is what I use to write jokes about is all the drama of it. And, and we spoke to um, Professor Chris Roberts a few weeks ago and he was all about how it's all about the, you know, political journalism is all about the drama and not about the reporting of local politics and the, and the local idea of politics. Um, but, it, you know, it's, it's interesting because I remember last time when you were on podcast and you were talking about how long, uh, you know, how long ago attack journalism started and in the same way now you discussed today, how long ago celebrity journalism started. And I think, 
even in my head, it seems so recent that we've had to have personality po- politicians, you know, and, uh, these these politicians, especially like Trump or like Boris, who are a big character that they can really play with. And, and that feels very recent to me. Is is there a, a sort of changing point where everything ramped up and everything became more dramatic and, and more perhaps over the top in, in the way it was described? Or is that just me having a very narrow <laughs> sort of recollection of history? Well, I think that with each kind of emergence of a mass media or a new form, what you get is an associated boom and a proliferation of new ways to use what are what are quite old thematic themes, which is heightening the visibility of certain individuals for a commercial or political or social purpose, which is been around forever. So if you have, if there's kind of five booms of celebrity culture where you get um, related to new platforms where you have an increase or a change that means that um, it impacts on how politics and politicians are um, performing to and the way that they are being reported on in journalism. So I've talked about the 18th century and then you've got the next big one really is the invention of the new journalism, of new journalism of the 1870s onwards, the Victorian even new journalists on both sides of the Atlantic and the origins of what we would now call tabloid journalism, but also it's the origins of old press. It's things like modern press. It's not just the tabloids, you know, the kind of idea of cross um, column headlines, of breaks, of of fillers, of, you know, the shape of the press changes and celebrity um, takes new forms. So the, and so does political journalism too. So in this country, you have T.P. O'Connor and George Nunes, who were both Liberal MPs and journalists and big celebrities in their own right, you know, massively famous, W.T. Stead, not an MP, obviously, not least because he went to jail for his campaigning journalism, but also an ardent liberal. Um, and they are, um, in their content that they're producing, the world between celebrity and politics is really, really blurred. So T.P. O'Connor writes um, magazines, periodicals called Picture Politics, and he talks about dandies in, in Parliament and the big, biggest noses in Parliament and the brightly coloured waistcoats of, you know, there's this kind of personal insider um, tracking to what's going on in Westminster. Um, And then you've got on the same point that, you know, in his columns, for example, which was called Mainly Like People, which was on the front page of the Star, not the same version of the Star we have today. It's a different newspaper. Um, He has the main focus of it as celebrities and politicians. He also focuses on the associated kind of staff of the public, of the kind of media industry, publicists theatre owners, that kind of thing. And then ordinary people too, so lottery winners um, from the continent, people who've suddenly become rich, um, criminals, people who were victims or witnesses of crime and who found themselves in public visibility. And you've got this kind of heady mix of politics and society and celebrity culture and consumer culture all kind of compressed together in this mainly about people column. So that's the second big boom. Sorry, I digressed a bit there. (laughs) The third big boom is then, of course, cinema and Hollywood. um, And and then multimedia kind of performances, radio, television, and the associated practices with that. Um, And then particularly in relation to to television, what that becomes is the kind of tabloidism 
the neoliberal model of tabloidism that takes hold at the end of the 1970s is kind of being growing to that point, which is this kind of commercialization and selling of self and private world becomes part, a greater part of the performance. And um, that's linked to kind of new notions of individualism and the individualist in, in politics. So, Yes, that neoliberal model of politician, which kind of begins with the Reagan-esque and Thatcher era, something new happens around there. And I think that's what people are seeing is the shift that they feel like has happened over the last 45 or 50 years. Um, And then, of course, the big fifth change that we are living through Um, or we have lived through over the last 20 years and we continue to live through is digital technology and the performance of self. And of course, post really 2008, the social media um, element of political performance. So, and where it's performances that happen across multiple platforms at once, but is often centered around self-performance on social media. And then that networks and is represented by other media in different ways. So the answer is both. It's been around forever, but that doesn't mean it hasn't vastly changed and that you are not identifying that there is something different about this age and, and there has been, than there has been, has been in, in ages before. Is, is one of the differences, I mean, from the sort of neoliberal kind of tabloid era onwards, is one of the differences that perhaps politicians are aware that they're now celebrities or more aware of how to play it and, and their relationship with the press may be changed or developed so that they you know so that the press played towards the images that they wanted to portray of themselves was, was that a change yeah I think the big shift around that is that you have um really when you look at Thatcher and Reagan who were very different politicians to even someone else and it always is astonishing to me that they are generationally John F Kennedy's era Thatcher and, and Reagan that they are born all around the same period. That's the era, but they're, of course, this later age, this kind of completely different historical age as we look at it. And what you've got then is the greater intertwining between the government and um, big owners and news conglomerates and the personal relationship between them, um, often kind of symbolised by uh, Murdoch's relationship with Thatcher and Reagan. And, but, you know, other editors absolutely adored her. The, the, you know, the Conan brothers, there's a lot of conversations, the Conrad brothers, about her, um, how they adored her, you know, this kind of, this adoration from certain pockets of the press of this political leader. And you've got the boom of corporate communications coming into politics um, in a huge way. So public relations really becoming um, a huge facet of the political party structure and how a leader is communicated out to audiences. So, um, yes, the neoliberal era did change things in the relationship with the press between political leaders was one of them. Um, And it's... It's that's not gone away, of course, is that there is still that intertwined relationship, particularly in the British news between the British news media and, of course, our government, not least our prime minister, who was a journalist. And I will say to people, I said in my book that it felt fatalistic, even like fantastical, that when I finished writing my book, the president of the United States was a reality television celebrity. And the 
the Prime Minister of Britain was a journalist, given that my whole argument was that celebrity and journalism and politics were intertwined from their origins and what was going to be the logical outcome of that. It remained incredible. It is. It is so. It also, when you spell it out like that, it's just so frightening, isn't it? That there's no, no barrier between all those things right now. I mean, you know, how has it affected our, our politics? Because uh, you know, you can see it even you know in recent polls between uh, sort of Johnson and Starmer. Starmer's doing very badly in, in popularity and. So regardless of his his politics, which I discuss regularly on the show as well, but you know because he's not a very engaging personality. Whereas Johnson, uh, whether you, you like him or, or loathe him, which mostly the latter for me, but he knows what you know. It's every day is a different soundbite or a different thing that he said is across all of the front pages, and he very much knows how to play that. And is that, I mean, that must be a uh, that must be a big drive for how we're all voting. Well, yeah, absolutely, and and Boris Johnson is. Um, a corporate is a is a sorry a consummate communicator. He is somebody who is able to um, attract huge amounts of attention just by performing a version of himself or by by heightening certain facets of his own personality. That that puts people in it, many people in ease in a way that um, other politicians have never been able to do it's the it's this ability to make people feel easy about what is he's actually saying as he is saying it that is I think astonishing I think that people underestimate the the uniqueness of that in a similar way that there was a uniqueness about Barack Obama Barack Obama was a star politician he wasn't just a um, a politician who used elements of celebrity culture. He had this almost, he has this star-like charisma that that um, kind of opened up a new realm of performance of self and performance of political vision that, you know, I know a lot of politicians, if they could bottle it, they would, and, you know, drink it, they would love to have that kind of capacity. And Boris Johnson's isn't the same. He's not a star and it's not a star like charisma that he has it's a it's a a kind of buffoonery that makes people feel at ease that really is just like there are parts of him that's just like me that he says the wrong thing sometimes that he kind of looks a bit unkempt that you know he doesn't mean it when he says something racist he's just not thinking it's just because he's authentic in who he is and I think they underestimate him. I think that Boris Johnson is um, a very astute propagandist in the same way as um, other prime ministers in the past who have been um, journalists are astute propagandists. Churchill would be the obvious one, you know, one of the most astute propagandists of all time. And also, you know, some would argue, thank goodness for it, the propaganda that... Britain created during the Second World War to counter fascism in Europe was a powerful narrative and Churchill really drove that, you know, and this idea of the blitz spirit of courage and defiant that we were unified, the royal family is this kind of middle class staying in London, you know, really, really clever stuff. And I think Boris Johnson has something of that, that capacity and something of that political nounce where he is able to um, 
make pe- you kind of make people kind of believe believe what he's saying on the element of that he's authentic about what he's saying. Um, but I, I mean, I would say that it's it's all um, part of his political performance that he knows what appeals to people. He is quite likely, I guess, to have had several focus groups across the course of his career where it's discussed. Um, I don't know, I have no evidence of that, but I would be surprised. He would be the only political leader who hasn't had it in modern times. And, you know, he's very good at what he does. I mean, it's, it's incredible how, you know, sort of when I think about celebrity journalism, for example, about, you know, about a TV celebrity or about, as we've seen with a lot of the stuff about, say, Meghan Markle recently, which is obviously you know, race driven, that's a slightly different conversation, but we, you know, if it, with, when celebrities mess up or they do something badly, they are absolutely pounced on by a lot of the press and often shamed. And, and with Boris, um, you know, the, the, the difference seems to be that when, for example, we had that big argument with, with Carrie Simmons and the police were called, it was completely directed away from him. And when we've had all these horrific COVID deaths and we've had all the, the horror of the past year, you know, he it's it's sort of it's like Teflon, and there's, there's a lack of shame on his part, but also the none of the press is interested in pouncing on it particularly. I say none of the press. I'm, I'm absolutely you know sort of generalising here, but it, there, there's um, a lack of wanting to pounce on that in the way that we would with TV celebrities or movie celebrities in that same way. So, what is the difference there? Simply because of money and kind of connections and and the, the biases of uh, political biases of press, or is there a lack of interest as well from readership about those things um i think probably i don't know if it's lack of interest but i think there's there's elements of both the audience and the johnson's unique and the conservative party's relationship with the news media at play that both of those um have a have a factor to play in this i think that what has um what Boris Johnson kind of has encapsulated is a cultural shift in this country around um, neoliberalism and its later model, which was progressivism, neoliberal progressivism of the Blairs and Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. There's been a rejection of that amongst um, pockets of the British community. If we kind of stick to Britain for this one, because, you know, America... Is a different has different facets at play, but there's been a rejection of that from pockets of the British community that would have traditionally voted Labour. So what you have is that you've got neoliberal um, kind of social and economic um, values from the from the 70s and across the 80s, but it's a very conservative vision of it. Um, it's linked to um, you know, kind of limitations. If you think, you know, Thatcher was um, someone's very conservative on gay rights, um, very outspoken about single parents. You know that this was a social conservatism, quite you know, quite by our standards, I would say, quite right wing social conservatism. And then Blair and Bill Clinton in America, Barack Obama, but it's the influences here too tie that neoliberal economic system to this idea of progressive politics. So that we are going to be more tolerant. Now that made political sense, as well as I do believe that was the generational difference between him and Thatcher is that I do think that he did believe this stuff. But also at the time, it made sense because people were ready for that kind of alternative social vision, you know, and and so it was an astute political move too. 
But when you, and, and David Cameron largely stayed with that vision of this kind of neoliberal sort of progressive, but he was more financially, you know, moving more financially, fiscally right wing, the neoliberal model. He didn't rock the boat vastly, David Cameron, from that progressive vision. But of course, when the 2008 economic disaster happened, there was a rejection of people who were suffering of that economic vision that this huge swathes of the population were left behind. And the version that was before them at that time was also tied to progressive politics. And I think that people, but in rejecting the inequalities they were feeling in their lives, also ended up rejecting some of these progressive models too. And into that kind of time of discussion and despair, or were were feeling that that was linked, that, that... at the same time as you are arguing for the greater rights of these people and these people and these people, and that's the focus, you know, I am economically bereft. So it became linked in people's minds and into that debate and into that kind of mess while we were trying to figure all of that out, step Boris Johnson, Brexit, and then, you know, step the Brexit debate, Boris Johnson, to fill it, and, and people like Nigel Farage becoming more popular who... who kind of fed that narrative to them, said they were right. And so there is, if you think about it that way, does it mean that if they re- if people reject Boris Johnson, do they feel like they are also, um, you know, kind of accepting that they are worth less in their minds to others? It's a, it's a very complex thing, but it's a it's an indication of a lot of different events, political and social and economic events, combined with changes to media cultures, compa- combined with social the rise of social media and the in- instantness of it um, in terms of our news agendas, and also a political figure who is a trained journalist and knows how to create a narrative and. And that's why I think he has become so difficult to pin anything on, I think, for the for, for the critical British media. But, you know, a lot of the media don't want to either. They are, that Boris Johnson fits very well with that conservative neoliberalism of the 80s and early 90s that um, underpinned tabloid culture and still, you know, kind of underpins tabloid cultures to this day. He's a, he's a good person to represent it for them in the same way that Margaret Thatcher was a good person to represent it. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And we'll be back with Bethany in a minute, but first... The thing about global pandemics, right, is that they're global, yeah? I mean, Dominic Raab may struggle to understand that there's anywhere beyond the sea, but over the past 12 months, COVID has done far more travelling than any of us will get to do. 2.7 million people worldwide have now died from it, which is the equivalent to the population of um, a place with 2.7 million people in it. You Google it, I'm not your dad. Now, in an ideal world, you know, like one in a multiverse somewhere where instead of us humans, they've got ones who've got milk cartons for heads and they actually embrace sharing and kindness, but also shit out of their knees and speak in cow. Wait, sorry, I've gone too far with this analogy. I mean, in an ideal world, vaccines would also be global. Hooray! Vaccines were made. Surely everyone will just knock COVID on the head in a year and we can all get on with our lives like we did with tuberculosis, which has nearly been eradicated from everywhere in the globe, absolutely everywhere except um, the global south, including tons of developing nations. Or uh, like we did with AIDS. Oh, no, wait. Sorry, not that one. Oh, uh, look, here's the thing with the COVID vaccinations. All of the big rich countries, including the UK, which is gradually sliding down the scale, have snaffled all the vaccines for themselves, blocking aid for smaller countries until they've fixed their own, aka the airplane oxygen mask system. The US said back in February it was their people first, then India slowed down on exporting their vaccine, and now the EU aren't willing to share either until they've got all jabbed up. The UK were meant to be getting all our vaccine from our own country and some from the EU, but now we're suddenly buying lots of India's too, around 10 million doses that were thought to be for poorer nations. Though, of course, the UK's vaccine minister and style icon for Butlin's magicians, Nadim Zawahi, insists that they've got assurance that it won't affect India's commitment to send 300 million doses to lower and middle-income countries, all the while India's own supply isn't actually reaching its own poorest citizens as they have to register online but have no access to the internet. It's a completely unequal game, becoming increasingly more unequal as vaccines get bought up, meaning the supplies cost more and many countries can't afford them. There is also the issue of patents, meaning that only certain countries can develop them, and of course the issue of costly resources and the knowledge they need to make them. The US, UK and EU have all blocked patents from being dropped because the drugs industry said it would stop its ability to invest in future COVID treatments and other illnesses. Yeah, basically, they don't want to stop making money off people getting unwell, and sadly there's no cure for greed yet, and if there was, they'd probably patent it and only sell it to the highest bidder. According to the drug lords, sorry drug industry reps, eliminating patent protections would undermine the global response to the pandemic. And yes, I guess it would, as it'd just show how selfish many countries are and that it's entirely not necessary to be. The big worry is that fewer organisations and companies would work on vaccines because there'd be less money in it and they wouldn't want to save people if it didn't mean they could also buy a Beamer. So it could, horror of horrors, lead to a global effort to make people healthier because of kindness and that would really dick up how everything everywhere works. The World Health Organisation is trying to work around this with a system called COVAX, which sounds a lot like a Marvel villain. And that means the G7 fund that scheme instead of sending vaccines to countries direct, all of which is helpful, but not as helpful as it would be where all these companies and countries deciding to take on the teacher person to fish ethos, but with vaccines, as fish really wouldn't help right now. But sadly, that's the way it is, because people everywhere are shits. So this means that the vaccines are all getting political up in here. Russia and China, for example, are sending loads of vaccines directly to Africa because many countries on that continent are now booming in the tech industry and the Russians and Chinese really want their fingers in those raspberry pies. 
In the UK, we've got all up in India's vaccine grill because they're going to be the third biggest economy pretty soon and that's going to be real nice for the trades in the future. And if anything, I suppose this does mean that the UK might possibly, maybe, be more generous with vaccine donations around the world in the hope that tit for tat, post-Covid and Brexit, we might occasionally be sent a tomato or something from somewhere else. Boris Johnson said that 80% of the UK's surplus is going to get donated around the world, but as we might now have a slowdown in our supply through April, that's 80% of not very much at all. French President and smug beaver Emmanuel Macron said 5% of France's vaccines will be donated too, which critics have actually said is nowhere near enough. The thing is, if poorer countries don't get vaccines, then old Covid's going to run rampant there. Not only could it mean more casualties and deaths in the places people conveniently pretend don't exist until they accidentally see about them on the news, but it also means that the coronavirus gets more goes to mutate and create variants that could then end up back here, which means different vaccines would need to be made, things will be shut down, borders are closed, trades all screwed again, everything will be awful, and all of us finally complete Netflix. So, the choice is either everyone gets vaccines, or we all stay with Covid as the one true globally uniting entity, achieving what no other superpower has and ruling over us all and arguably forcing in more socialist progressive measures than any of our political parties might. Oh wait, maybe Covid wants to mutate to become the cure for greed. Ah no, actually no, then Boris Johnson wouldn't have survived it, would he? No, ignore me, my theories are trash. And now, back to Bethany. Yeah, I think one of the things that, that fascinates me is, I, I suppose, uh, just as as a as a, mem- a public member, as an audience of, of all this media, you know, it's it sort of I I feel like I understand why the press portrays Boris in a certain way, and and my lack of understanding is always why people refuse to look around that or look at the other elements of it, and and I wonder if if, if a part of it is. Well, is you know, with everything you're discussing and, and we mentioned earlier, it's about having that human story to drive things or having a sort of celebrity to drive things. Is that why, you know, we're not interested in, in politics unless it has a human story, unless it has a person behind it or or a drama behind it? You know, there's a lot of localised, important political issues that are going on right now that are being largely ignored, but they'd have to be portrayed in facts and figures. And does that just not have a, a grab with people anymore now that we're embedded in this the world of celebrity political journalism um i don't think i don't think it's binary like that i don't think that it's a, it's because of celebrity that we have that other thing um as i say that you know across the the course of history celebrity culture has equally really affected significant political change by humanizing um personal story you know political stories by attracting attention by involving ordinary people in politics as a system you know that that the place of celebrity in that process of involvement um is really really important um so i don't think that it's now that it's because we're all looking over there you know britney spears we're not looking over there at um key starmer you know that that I don't think is the case. I think that um, we have really, really narrow sets of news that makes mainstream news media um, that we are unfortunately haven't got the investment. If you're talking about local level, we just don't have the level investment we need in the local press to be able to put the resources in to do those issues to the best of their ability. So those big pieces that you're saying is that if they need to produce 10 web stories a day, then the crime story from the local police, the school teacher story, these these are quicker ways of producing content that's going to be shared on their local Facebook groups and communities. 
Um, what we have now, of course, though, as well, is there is just a greater competition for attention um, across all of our attentions that, you know, that there isn't... There was, there's never been a unifying media in the way that people think that, you know, that everybody, single person in the company was focused on one thing. But there have been times of unification through media events that grab the consciousness and we think of that as associated at the time. But now we don't have any sense of that unification in that way. The most likely part of that is the tabloid, still the tabloid press. And that's because it is the most likely to be shared in terms of our news media. It is the most likely to be discussed on broadcast news media or in other ones, the front pages of newspapers. Um, and it is most likely to still get contact, direct contact with politicians. Um, and so when you've got a situation in our country where the, the popular press is by and large supportive of our government, is that its political leanings ally with our current government, then the amount of information that ever even crosses the timelines or the consciousness of the public is limited. So that they're not look, it's not, it's not that it's not crossing their paths, the stuff that you and I see because we've stuck out that path. So is is that why, you know, the, you know, for example, Marcus Rashford, who did that amazing thing of highlighting, uh, you know, food poverty uh, for children and highlighting the need for free school meals. Is, is that why he cut through? Because he was already a celebrity. He was already being reported by in the press because of his, his football accolades and the fact that everyone, you know, obviously football is a massive industry in itself. Um, is, is that the only way that this news is going to come through is if we have celebrities like that, that, that kind of push it forward. Um, I think that that's really important. And I think that, you know, celebrities will have um, usually a very, very well considered um, personal brand um, communication strategy and building strategy that, you know, that there will be several, if you're talking about any, major celebrity there will be other people who advise them in some way around how to um, manage their image how to build their brand in whichever way that it is um I'm talking about mainstream celebrities here you know kind of social media influencers and that micro celebrity world um can work differently but those those big name ones and I think that a lot of celebrities should spend as much time developing uh, a brand around their ethical values. What is it that matters to me? What am I going to speak out about? Um, how am I going to do that? That if we had more of that thought and consideration given to what the social value of their brand was, as well as the economic value of their brand and that level of, of kind of, input and, and and consideration um then you would have more marcus rashford's and i think that marcus rashford is it's it's a unique kind of authenticity authenticity because it's also something he's really lived um so it, it feels authentic too it doesn't feel like a celebrity jumping on the bandwagon it feels like a part of his human story 
So just because celebrities also speak out doesn't mean it would always be as resonant as Marcus Rashford. But then I suppose there's at the core of me, I'm a bit of an idealist who thinks that if you've got a platform, you should use it to affect positive social change in your world. And, you know, not everybody agrees with me on that. But but I, I'd certainly argue at the end of my book that that I in the conclusion, I argue were a series of things of what's to be done essentially to make it better. So what could we do in terms of press regulation, in terms of the training of students, you know, of journalists? Um, and in terms of what we might do as individual audience members, you know, to kind of make cultures healthier and also what what kind of strategies celebrities could do to more meaningfully use their platform and voice. Yeah, I, I fully agree with you. I think it's it's so important for people to do that. And I, and I do wonder if, as you say, that's one of the ways that things may change in the future is if more celebrities who aren't politicians perhaps uh, kind of use their platform to be political. Um, and, and I wonder, sort of, you know, you mentioned a few ways there that obviously you say in your book, I, I wondered what there are, if there are direct things that listeners can do now about changing, you know, the future. And, and also just, if you think it's likely to change anyway, it sounds like if we've had sort of 320 years of celebrity focused journalism, it doesn't sound like that's going to change in any way if that's if that's the way it's always been but is there is there a chance that maybe i know we'll just get bored of it i i, I say this this is a very personal thing because i really get bored of celebrity news and i find that if a panel shows all celebrities whoever oh, i can't be bothered you know and I, is there that kind of fatigue that may kick in and change things too well we'll see won't we i i don't know it hasn't it does not show any signs of abatement. What I think is more likely to happen is that there will be a new way that celebrity culture is performed and communicated in the way that there has been other ways in the past, and that will negate your boredom for a while. <laughs> Not yours, but the, <laughs> the, you know, the, the, there will be a new form of it or something that holds your interest. Um, yeah, I think that audience members have a really important role in to play in some of the, to combat some of the most um, damaging aspects of celebrity journalism and celebrity culture, particularly. Um, and we've talked about it before, which is around cultures of attack. Um, I think that audiences just need to learn to suck the oxygen out that this I'd, you know, this kind of, if we're thinking about the Be Kinder campaigns and all of those kind of things, they're all really well and good. And I completely agree that we should be kinder. But if your Be Kinder message also subtweets and attack, the attack on that individual, you are still giving it oxygen and perpetuating that attack on them. Um, and I don't think people have the awareness of that, that um, don't subtweet it, don't, you know, kind of keep repeating the attack, you can show solidarity without doing so. Um, and so I would say that audience members could do that. I think that way, and then 12 months ago or two years ago even, I might have been in a different place with this. But as things stand, and this is the depressing bit, as I think it's going to get worse before hopefully down the line it's going to get any better and that's because of the changes we are about to see in terms of um Ofcom 
I don't see the IPSO code of practice tackling issues of attack journalism still in any meaningful way, regardless of the very high profile tragedies we've had um, and the ongoing debate, a constant debate about it that isn't at the moment changing press regulation. We've get the, the government paper on online harms came out this time last year um, and its recommendations were not what I would have done. And, and also this idea of putting it underneath the banner of Ofcom. And then we are all waiting to see who the new head of Ofcom is going to be, who's going to put all of this stuff together. I think that the potential impact on broadcast journalism is vast of that um, and that cultures of celebrity, of the celebritization of politicians, of greater, greater political partisanship, um, of greater cultures of attack on people who disagree with, with um, progressive visions of politics. I think that they're all potentially going to get worse over the next kind of period of time which is, can become a bit depressing, I'm not going to lie, about there's moments where I can, I really have to think about the level of my own engagement with this world because it is easier, and this is the using your platform to do a good thing, is if this feeds into what I think so many celebrities are frightened to do so, or public figures are frightened to do so, is that it is difficult to put your foot head above the parapet in such a toxic atmosphere that Marcus Rashford gets abused to, that that we as well as praise, and that when you are watching it all unfold, sometimes you feel like the best thing for me to do is to just take a step back and concentrate more on my own personal world than the noise that is going on outside of it, and. And it's, I think it's tough times. I think that, you know, that we have to acknowledge that it's really, really toxic, difficult times at the moment in terms of our public sphere and the place of personal, of the personalization of public figures within it. Yeah, I was going to say, there's also that sort of thing at the moment where people respond so, they feel that they have to say something all the time and they respond so quickly and then often it's ill thought through and everyone jumps on it and it can be equally as, as destructive and that's the sort of social media has demanded an immediate response from everyone. Why hasn't this person spoken about it? And actually that allows no time to digest it, think about it, think about what a measured or, or you know thoughtful response would be. And, and I find that quite scary uh, at times. And there's no room to make mistakes. Mm. And there's no room to there's no room to politically grow or socially grow and to you know I am I am not the same person that I was when I was twenty but my my social political understanding of the world is very different. I think about back to you know university day, days and debates in the union and free speech society. I was involved in a in a in a free speech society when I was at university, which then had very different meanings to me than a something called a free speech society probably would now, you know. And and I think that I'm really grateful there wasn't social media at that time. Because where's the space to make mistakes and learn and grow from things now? And that's the, I think it would be a much better debate and discussion to have than these kind of 
these lazy terms such as cancel culture or woke. But they, these are really lazy terms to, by which we can't even have conversations about because it becomes so binary, it becomes so either you're right or wrong. We can't even have conversations about where is the space for apology? Where is the space to grow? Where is the space to, to, to think and to learn better? And I mean, that's the risk here, isn't it? Is that social media doesn't afford that. No, it doesn't afford that. And it's also brief as well. It's always such a, you know, such a limited amount of words uh, and everyone always, you know, reads it in the tone of voice they choose to. And I, I wondered as well, just what you, you think, um, you know, just sort of wrap up really, but we've had the big announcement of the brand new media room at number 10, which is going to be very US style. Uh, we've seen the picture that, uh, I don't, you know, it has a Henry Hoover in the corner. Um, and it's all, you know, it's all set up for these big announcements like like they do at the White House. And I mean, is, is that just sort of celebritizing the idea of politics even more? And I suppose narrowing is going to narrow where we get our news from more, does it? Um, yeah, I did see that because actually the journalist who took a picture at IT um, and News is a former student of mine called Nathan Lee. And Nathan and I went to Greece together to um, work on some content around the refugee crisis and a campaign. So I know, so he's a... He's a friend as well as a graduate. I hope he's listening. Hi, hi, Nathan. So I saw the picture. I was laughing at it. Um, he works for ITN now. Um, what we're seeing, of course, that is a presidential system of communication that we are importing. Um, and Boris Johnson's popularity make him almost the perfect um person to to import that system it's not something I'm particularly surprised about I'm more surprised that we didn't get one during the Blairs actually is that it would seem to me that it would have been quite the perfect thing for you know that Tony Blair and, and Alistair Campbell might have quite liked that kind of media sort of uh, kind of thing where they could go in and kind of address the media um, so I think it's been a long time coming that kind of setup. Do I think that it would make um, communicating the reality of what is going on in our political system any better? No. Do I think that it will give us um, anything other than government propaganda? No. Um, but almost as part of me that thinks we've always had this idea that the conversations between journalists and politicians and the interviews kind of go on behind closed doors, sort of in the corridors, of Westminster that we don't have that public scrutiny over the moment and the questioning themselves and there's part of me that kind of thinks actually having a, that in a public sphere where the interactions if it was to reduce down the kind of anonymous um, kind of quotations and a source tells me and that we we can have greater visibility of government spokespeople I think that has the potential to be a positive thing. So I'll try and be kind of it. And I also read that it was a Russian company who's fitted the communications within it. Um, and I am not an anti-Russian xenophobe by any stretch of the imagination, but I do um I did think that it was an interesting point that people raised. Yeah, it's very cute, especially after the the the, the probe into Russian interference last year. That well, yes. but we've got loads of if you, it's the bit that uh, you know 
Oh gosh, and it, it sounds British jobs for British workers-ish. But if your whole political mantra of a party is this idea of British jobs for British workers, why is so much of what they do, you know, kind of given to foreign companies? That's the bit that, like, in Russian companies, that's the bit that I, that's the kind of, I guess, when you were saying why people don't see the stuff around. Like, why do people not, not just think that where's that critical step it's very interesting yeah it's, it's, it's fascinating and, and you know similarly like the blue passports we all demanded them supposedly and then and then it was given to a french company to make them and, and but nobody just, bothers I about mean, the it's next incredible. step yeah it's absolutely incredible and that's that's what i mean it, you know I, that's why i find it so fascinating all your studies on because it is like watching it's like watching a story and people are more invested in the characters and the reality of of the story or the or the situations that are happening around it and, and people are more interested in it being a, a personal attack on Boris rather than actually people in our area are all unemployed. You know, there's, 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 there seems to be a, um, uh, a barrier to being able to un- understand how these things are all linked and, and not just we're watching some drama and, but, and on all sides of the political spectrum, that one, all sides of the political spectrum. I mean, I get, I'm from Sunderland originally and the amount of tweets where I say somebody's saying like um, that'll teach Sunderland for voting for Brexit or they were told or and you're like you have got zero understanding of the social and political and economic hardships of growing up in Sunderland. I'm from a single parent family. I grew up in social housing largely and or private rented one of the two and they've just got absolutely zero kind of understanding of the reality of what caused people in that area to vote for Brexit and then but they're not willing to even negotiate or to discuss that that's not what they want to talk about what they want to talk about is haha or this idea of idiot northeasterners or Indian idiot people from Sunderland and it it, it just infuriates me that if you want to look for one of the reasons that Brexit happened, if that's the kind of thing you're coming out with, look in the mirror. Because you you didn't stand up for people who were being completely forgotten and left behind in this country under successive governments, you know, not under just the Conservative government by any stretch of the uh, imagination. Um I mean, I I was one of the people because my mum my mum's a teacher my mum became a teacher who my family saw circumstances improve vastly under the Blair years in terms of the amount of money there was in terms of my mother's status the investment that was put in education at that time so I was personally lucky but there were lots of people left behind there you know lots of people left behind in Sunderland who did not reap the benefits of the economic boom, but had to suffer the consequences of the economic downfall. Um, So we do have to think of, but so when we say that, why are we not looking around? Why do the people who love Boris Johnson not look around the kind of extenuating information or the extenuating thing around the government? That happens, you know, to people in the liberal, in the centrists and leftists, too, that they yeah. don't look enough around what's going on. 
Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. It's, it's something I brought up on a, 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 a. I try not to repeat myself, but I think I, I think I mentioned it on the podcast a few weeks ago. But just I, I did a number of shows in Barnsley not long after all the Brexit vote, and uh, Barnsley was repeatedly vox popped as you know fifty nine percent or whatever voted Brexit, and, and it would only ever vox pop people who go we hate immigrants. Well, and I would regularly have these big audiences coming to shows going we didn't vote for Brexit, and we didn't, and we we're really sad about it, and you know, and it was it, mm. the the city was far more nuanced than, but they did have big issues with unemployment big issues of industry leaving and there were various things about none of this was reported it was all just this city voted brexit and and nothing else about it and it was very frustrating and if you're feeling like that then boris johnson being kind of on your side is an appealing thing isn't it Mm. you know if you if you're feeling that that you know that remaining remainer mps on parties that you politically voted for maybe in the past kind of seeing you as the blame for what's gone wrong here because you voted for Brexit. You voted for Brexit because you were, you know, for whatever reason that you voted for it, you know, whether rightly or wrongly. He's very appealing, you know, he's very good at kind of fitting into that space and giving somebody who people, for whatever reason, even if he is or isn't, feel is on their side. I mean, clever. He's very good at that. Yeah, it's so so annoying. Oh, I know, so annoying. Giving credit for something, isn't it? I think, <laughs> I think Boris Johnson. I mean, I, I think, but I think Boris Johnson is a really important prime minister that we will that we look we will look back and think in terms of the impact that he had on British society and culture, um, and how that happened. The kind of relationship with the news media, the putting in of people into Ofcom, the, you know, the the changes to the BBC, that, you know, Boris Johnson is a very, very busy, impactful prime minister, just in ways that people aren't really seeing yet, I yeah. think. Yeah, it's, it's one of the things that I do think is, you know, talk about, there's lots of talk about him resigning because he's knackered or he's not earning enough money or whatever. But uh, if that happened, whoever replaced him wouldn't carry off this horrific raft of policies in the same way. I just don't think, I don't think the public would take it from Michael Gove in the, in the same way. No, you know. I think you're right. I think that the Conservative Party know that, that mm. they, they, that they haven't got, and there isn't another Boris Johnson sitting, you know, in the, in who has the same kind of appeal, particularly to working class voters. And, the ones that are trying to have that kind of thing don't have his ability to carry it off. So if you look at, um, it's Ben Bradley, is it? Mm. The um, Is it Macclesfield yeah. MP for Macclesfield? I want to say Macclesfield. I could be wrong on that. Um, he, there was an element of, his, of Boris Johnson in his performance. He kind of tries to attract people with the same kind of sound bites and women and kind of, taking but he doesn't have the charm to carry it off in the same way and that's the thing about Boris Johnson there's an effortless charm about him that and people find him funny and that is is unique I think in British politics at all I don't think there's anybody with that set unique set of talents That is making him so successful. I'd say, as as a comedian, drives me nuts. I can see through all of it. It's horrible. Yeah, <laughs> he'd, he'd be a yeah, terrible act if he was imagine. a gig with us. And I don't bomb. find him funny. Yeah. I mean, but that's yeah. that that's not my kind of sense of humour. It's that you know that no. kind of self-effacing um, kind of sense of humour. Um, there's a 
I was just what there's a there's a uh, I know I won't say that because I was going to make this is nowhere linked to Boris Johnson in any way, shape, or form. I just want to make that clear. But the I'm a big fan of um, Orson Welles, and he talks about Woody Allen once, where he says that his kind of affected self-effaceiveness, kind of self-deprecating attitude sets his teeth on edge. Mm. That it's so arrogant. He calls he says it's so arrogant because it's such a performance and like that he just can't bear it. Um and I and I love that because he of course he's this kind of grander than life kind of commentator on celebrity culture in his own right and completely opposite performance of Woody Allen. And I can see why, but it's that kind of thing for me. I don't I don't find that kind of that kind of sense of humor funny it's not my instinct so I wouldn't find it funny I wouldn't I wouldn't find that um attractive I don't think if it was on the left either it's not no it's not something that that appeals to me personally but I do understand why people like him I do understand why it works for so many what a shame! It's uh, <laughs> it's such a shame, is it? I have I, I should also say Ben Bradley's MP for Mansfield. Although uh, I mean he's not normally bothered about facts, but I'll I'll put it in for my sake and my own. Uh, my I'm own. sorry, about <laughs> no, no, that. sorry that's, Ben Bradley. I really apologise. As I said, if, based, based on his tweets and comments, to the people of Mansfield. I feel like it was only fair that you got that you got something about him wrong, and you, we shouldn't have corrected it. Really, we should have given him a taste of his own medicine. Um, anyway. Beth, it's so lovely. Thank you for coming back on the podcast. And and I asked you this before when you when you spoke to me brilliantly about attack journalism um, a little while ago. But you know, apart from yourself, um, and of course your book all about journalism and celebrity, um, who else? Who else would you recommend? Who else are you currently uh, reading, uh, listening to about not just about the history of journalism and celebrity, but also informative and alternative news resources? Oh, okay. Um, so I'm going to be really honest here, and I get my so- source of news is Twitter, and so I'm going to give you some Twitter accounts that um, I follow. The obvious one is the Celebrity Studies and the CMCS, um, Celebrity um, Research Group. They are really. There's a lot of really interesting podcasts and conversations and stuff that come are shared via that means in terms of um interesting people to follow i've got uh, um two colleagues who i work with a lot in um australia who are part of the persona studies um research fam and persona um, research consortium um david marshall whose book celebrity and power is kind of one of the seminal texts around celebrity culture um and kim barber B-A-R-B-O-U-R, who is a persona studies academic and does a lot of really interesting stuff around female activists um, and their online personas and how that draws from elements of celebrity culture in new and interesting and dynamic ways. Um, I have a colleague, Chris Stokel-Walker, who's wrote a book on YouTubers and on TikTok, who... um, is a journalist and he writes prolifically on um, news media and media cultures and technology, um, whole host of issues. So he is really worth a follow too. Um, And then I think that in terms of news media, I think that there's a couple of, there's Pippa, oh, I forgot my name, one second, Pippa from the Daily Mirror. Oh, Pippa Carrera. Yeah, and I still love Susie Boniface, the Fleet Street Fox. 
I think that they are, you know, from the tabloid kind of stable, but they're both really great journalists on Twitter. You know, they they have a great way of kind of mixing information and entertainment and finding, of course, um, in Pippa's case, brilliant political exclusives. So of the tabloid women, you know, let's not forget them. There's some fantastic female tabloid journalists out there. Thanks to Bethany for coming back on the podcast. Uh, you can find her on Twitter at Bethany Usher and her book Journalism and Celebrity uh, is available via rootledge.com. Um, it is an academic text, so as always the case uh, with those, it ain't cheap, but do grab a copy if you can. And I shall pop a link in the podcast blurb. I'm going to try and have some interviews that are focused on Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and the local and mayoral elections uh, when this gets back from its break. Um, but also I'm keen to hear what other areas of politics you need to hear about right now or in fact which ones you definitely don't. Let me know at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or just write it on a really big flag and it'll end up being in the background of some cabinet minister's interview on telly as they lie about things. Sadly, I'll be too busy swearing at the TV to pay attention to what it actually says. So, as always, probably just best to email, isn't it? And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. And in fact, this month's and a tiny bit of next month's because, well, hey, we all need a break, right? And I hope you manage a small break too. Go and celebrate Easter and remember when a giant chocolate rabbit was killed and then came back and we let our children eat them or something. I don't know, those paganistians or Craiganigans were cray-cray and religion really confuses me. If you feel like you might miss the show over the next two weeks, then hey, why not listen to old episodes? Tell everyone how much you like it, use the time to review the show, or even just bribe me to release bonus content by donating to the Kofi Patreon or ACAR supporter sites so that I can buy chocolate bunny idols and sacrifice them into my face. Dobry Den to ACAR, my bro the last skeptic, Cat Day and Katie Coxell, and this will be back in a few weeks when the third COVID wave washes up on our shores and Pretty Patel personally tries to detain it for several hours before asking police to come in and hit it, causing more than half the force to have to self-isolate and some protesters in pool to get away with writing arse across the statue of Robert Baden Powell. Bye! This week's show is sponsored by the Lord Bethel Topless Calendar, featuring the pallid, grey-skinned Lord removing his top and exposing his corpse in a TV show body in a dozen exotic sexy locations. Lord Bethel Topless buying crisps at the petrol station. Lord Bethel Topless sitting on the train. Lord Bethel Topless using the recycling centre. Lord Bethel Topless making people feel in in a cafe as he eats a sandwich. Lord Bethel Topless causing people to call the police in the park. The Lord Bethel Topless Calendar for all your cutting down on eating needs. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.